cooking cooking is a team sport. It's not it's not about it's not a sport about individuals. Like you know, it just so happens I'm the head chef. But the truth is, I couldn't do it without the kitchen hands. I couldn't do it without the junior chefs and the chef to parties, without the venue managers, without the the past commies, without the floor waiters. This is the crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. With a Croatian heritage, Daniel Dobro grew up in a household where food was front and centre. It wasn't uncommon to eat anything from crayfish on the charcoal grill to pig on a spit for family gatherings. It was only natural he'd end up carving out a career in the food industry. Daniel, how are you going? Fantastic. How are you today? Good. Mate, you grew up in a pretty fascinating family with, with, with food at the heart of it. Take us back there. What was it like? Absolutely. So, like, um, at a quite early age, my parents separated. Like, my mother's Australian, my dad's Croatian. So, you know, my brother and I would live with our mother during school times, but every school holidays, we'd go spend that time with my dad and obviously my dad's Croatian side of the family. So, we'd live in a little little town called Esperance. Um, So, every single school holidays and Christmas holidays, we'd spend with my dad and all my dad's side of the family. And um, through over the course of all those times, like food was always the, the the staple of our family. Like, you know, like it was always like the Friday night dinner or the Sunday lunch or, you know, there was always a birthday or a christening or something that we were involved in essentially going to some dis- either distant relatives or some family members. Like, you know, I, I remember from an early age, like every time something happened, there was a birthday party. It always been some some random person shared. There'd be like a pig in the spit on a rotisserie. And it was just food was obviously like, you know, my dad being born uh, overseas, my brother and I being first generation, like, so, you know, the food that my – father's side of the family liked to eat just didn't exist here. So the only thing that they could do was just cook for themselves because, you know, you, you always want that that taste and that flavour of home to bring back that nostalgia. So, you know, unfortunately, like, you couldn't go to any restaurants. So a lot of the food that we that we ate or my family or my, my dad or any of those uncles and aunties or in-laws, anyone wanted to eat, it was always, you know, in that, in that home setting. And it was always, you know, so my my family, my Croatian side of the family, they come from Dalmatia, which is the the coastal part of Croatia. So it's fairly different. Croatia's split into um, the continental side and the Mediterranean side. So they come from the Mediterranean side. So the food is very unique, but still, like if you want to talk about pork, pork is still at the heart of of everything they do and eat. You'd be surprised. Well, um, off air talking before we hit the record button, you mentioned that there was a bit of pig farming in your family. Going back, tell us a bit about it. So in the, in the early 70s, like my grandfather, Rocco, he had a, like a pastoral company. So they would buy, buy usually, uh, usually like uncleared land, clear the land, put fences up, build sheds, basically turn uncleared land into farming land and then sell it off. But through the course of the wheelings and dealings, like my dad and his four brothers all um, all worked 
like on the land with their father. And through the course and dealings, like, you know, they picked up farms already established. One of the farms they picked up in the early 70s was actually like a fully operational pig farm. So my my dad and my uncle Frank, which is my dad's youngest brother, for about two years um, in Barongarup, just like south of Mount Barker, they were pig farmers. And like, you know, prior to having the pig farm, they didn't really know anything about it. It was all just sort of picked up on the way. But some of like I remember from being from being little and like, you know, the stories I heard about pig farming and like back in those days, things were pretty loose. Like you know, the rules, regulations, is a very grey area. Um, just just like, you know, if I was to shoot off a couple of memorable stories, so, um, you know, they'd, they'd be like, they, on the on the farm, they had Tamworths, uh, Saddlebacks, large whites and large blacks. And out of the four types of pigs they had on the farm, he's like, his his memory was like whatever you did, you did not want to stay around the Tamworth pigs because apparently they're super feisty, and they will eat and kill anything. Like, and he's like, you know, the large whites and large backs, they're probably the most friendliest, but the Tamworths, like, they even like scared like they the Tamworth pigs used to scare my old men. Like, obviously, you know, they 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 predominantly fed them um, lupins and barley and wheat as their predominant food source, but anything extra they could give them was sort of a bonus. Are there any um, dishes or feasts or, or ways that um, pork was cooked that you remember from from that period of time in the family? So, um, like, the two the two biggest things for us and our family, like, two, this is, like, super traditional, like, obviously a suckling pig or, like, you know, a slight, always the smaller pigs because, like, more tender, less fat content. Um, suckling pig on the on the on the rotisserie, like the charcoal spit, that was always a thing. But then on special occasions, we would have what's called a pecker, which is like a traditional. It's only it's a type of cooking that only happens on the on the coast, like the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. So it's like lighting a fire, getting a huge big iron dome, similar to a camp oven. They throw the iron dome over the over the fire, heat it up. Once it's all burnt down to charcoal, they split the fire in two. In a dish, what they used to used to put was um, like you know a couple of suckling pig shoulders, a couple of turkey wings, and like you know maybe one or two lamb shoulders. They throw this like what roaring hot cast iron donut over the top, and then cover the top with coals. So that was like a super super traditional method of cooking that only sort of happens in this one part of Croatia, um, which, you know, that was like for soup because it was like such such a, a big thing to do and like the amount of effort it took to get it to that point, that was only ever done for like super special occasions. Like, you know, someone's christening or someone's got an 80th birthday, like a milestone event, that's when we had pekka. And like traditionally, like the most traditional pekka is literally pork, lamb and turkey. So pork, huge part. Obviously, like, you know, to, to talk into everyday things, like um, it's talking to everyday things, another – Another uh, thing, which is which was a staple, was like we would have um, stuffed paprikas, so stuffed capsicums. Except for the stuffed capsicums, they'd only use boar, like literally boar mints, so male pig mints, because like stronger flavour. So you know when you 
cook the capsicum, you get this like real, like pretty wild flavor of pork. Like, I, I, you know, probably looking back, um, the average palate today probably couldn't handle it because we all know boar has a tendency to have some certain flavors that are a bit under, undesirable. But um, looking back, man, amazing experience really really um helped shape me and my outlook on food as and who i am and the chef i am today uh these days you're manning the pans at market bistro up in uh, queensland which we'll get to shortly but why did you take that step into uh the food industry and and take us back to then what was it like so like I stepped in the food industry like unknowingly. So my hometown, my mum was a caterer. She used to cater for weddings, functions, like, you know, 400, 500, 600, 700 people. I started at the age of like seven years old, literally washing dishes by hand, probably got fired more than 50 times. Got Back then, like I was as a seven-year-old kid getting paid $2 an hour. So, you know, I'd work a Friday and a Saturday night, have 20 bucks to my name. I was literally the richest seven-year-old going around. But that sort of unknowingly that's how I got my start in in cooking and kitchens. Um, and then, like, sort of towards high school, like, all my mates were, like, you know, come to year nine, year ten, all my mates are dropping out, becoming builders and becoming sparkies and diesel mechanics or, you know, going into the mines. And, like, for me, I, I honestly couldn't think of doing anything worse than, than a job like that. So I was at a crossroads with, Jesus, what do I do with my life? And then – I had a meeting with a career counselor and he's like, you know, what do you like to do? I'm like, oh, you know, I like art, but I can probably never make a living at art. Um, I like cooking. He's like, oh, have you ever thought of being a chef? And I'm like, not really. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll enroll you in the uh, vocational the vocational program. So from, the, from year 10 in high school, I did a vet course, which was like three days a week at school two days a week in a workplace, which I was like, at that age, I'm like, Jesus, anything to be to spend less time at school. I just jumped on it. But then what I realised, so I started working at a restaurant called the Taylor Street Tearings, which was like probably the busiest restaurant in my hometown of Esperance. So population 13,000 people, but we were, it was a super busy restaurant. And it was like breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven days a week, busy for the lot. Um, what I'd realised when I first started cooking is that all the like the years of washing dishes and all the things my like my mum drilled into me about keeping clean and washing your hands and doing things in order and organization, all those things that I got unknowingly drilled into me by her sort of put me so far ahead of the curve when I actually stepped into a professional kitchen. Cause like, you know, when I when I started, literally when I started, I was 13 years old, like working in kitchens. And um, you know, I could see this there was a there was a pretty clear an easy directive that I was like leagues ahead of like the other like full-time apprentices. And I was only like literally doing two days a week as a trainee. So that, that's how I got my start in cooking. And then, like, you know, it probably took maybe a year, maybe two years before, like, I just fell head over heels in love with cooking. And I was like, wow, this is like – this is a feeling that I've never never had before. And, like, you know, and, and part and parcel with that is, like, you know, I become – what I'd realized is that I became very good in a very short amount of time and I found cooking just came naturally, whereas, you know, I'd see guys that I'd work with and, like, just get angry and upset and bang their heads against the wall and I'd be like, 
I mean, why don't you understand it? It's not that hard. It's pretty easy. And so that's that's how it's sort of from from those first early years, that's how it's it's always sort of been. It's always come natural. I've never had to try hard to be good at it. And like, you know, that's not to that's not to um blow my own trumpet, but you know, toot toot, you've got to give yourself props every 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 chance you get. Um, you spent a lot of your career in Victoria. How, how did you end up there? So when I was – so my first ever head chef, a bloke by the name of Roger Louis Petit III, his father was – his he was originally from Victoria. Um, he was Tetsia's sous chef at his very first restaurant. And so, like, I'd heard all these stories about Victoria and, like, you know, I said to Roger, I'm like, you know, Chef, um, I want to I want to learn how to cook, and I want to go to a proper restaurant. I know Esperance can only take me so far. And he's like, "What's?" I'm like, "What's What's your thoughts and opinion?" He's like, "Don't worry about Perth. Don't even bother going there. Just go straight to Victoria. Doesn't matter where you land. Everywhere's good." So then, um, at the tender age of seventeen, got a one way ticket to Victoria. I had one friend who was living here at the moment, and literally packed a suitcase. Packed a suitcase, got on the bus, went from Essence to Perth, got on the plane in Perth, flew from Perth to Melbourne, and sort of never really looked back. And I was, I was just lucky and fortunate to um, sort of, I don't know, meet the right people at the right time, and got got a really good start. Like you know, the first place I worked for was um, Oyster Little Burke under a chef Joe Vargetto, and you know, to to have. Like to have mentors like that from the moment I got here, though people like that really like sort of steered me in the right direction with food. Joe's one of the most influential chefs in uh, Melbourne these days. Do you have any stories of of what it was like working with him? Oh my god! So my my, I'll, I'll tell you one story of what it was like. So you know, he, Joe probably won't like me saying this, but you know, I think there's a few. Uh, a few anger issues, but like there is with most, you know, chefs who care and give a fuck. But um, sort of when I first started working for Joe, he he absolutely he just hated me. He just did not like me for some reason. And you know, I tried so hard, and he would just get so angry and aggressive and violent. And like you know, as as a young chef, literally green behind the ears, seventeen years old, like I was just like, oh my god, what have I got myself into? Like you know, I used to have services. Service literally just before service, I'd throw up before service because I was that nervous because about the about the bollockings that I that I might get in the future. So, um, two quick little stories. One day, I'm I'm literally cooking on the on the air section. Made a pasta. I've got got two crab spaghettinis coming up. I plate one up. Plate are absolutely terrible. Just it looks like absolute shit. Mind mind the French, of course. Um, and then I've gone to turn around to to grab the other pan off the stove to turn around. And as I've grabbed the pan over my left shoulder comes flying this plate of crab spaghettini, hits a stove, smashes. There's literally spaghettini on the stove, spaghettini in the wall. And I've just gone, oh. And, like, I, I can't repeat what he said to me now, but the, 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 the premise of his point was, can you please make another one, make two more very quickly? And so – it was those moments where I was just like, holy crap, this is like, you know, it was it was in that kitchen which I realized how much food meant to people. And, you know, I took 
I took on board his care and his passion, his love for it, and made it my own. And then things things got a bit easier. But with Joe, so Joe hated me for whatever reason. And then one day he goes, "Oh, Daniel, you know your surname Dobra. What does that mean?" And he's like, "Oh, it's Croatian." He's like, "Oh, are you Croatian?" And I'm like, yeah, and he's like, oh, you know, Joe growing up in Footscray, grew up with a lot of Croatians, had a lot of Croatian mates, and then from that moment, he was like, nice. The following day I got into work, I, I walk into work <laughs> and literally there's like black and white photocopied pictures of Goran Ivanisevic, the Croatian tennis player with the, with the Wimbledon plate holding over his head in plit printed in big letters saying Dobber's number one. And I walk in the kitchen like 8 o'clock and he's like, Dobber's, Dobber's, woo with all these pictures. And like from then, from there on and then, it was like he was, me and him were best mates. So that, that's a little story about Joe. You spent uh, some time working with Dan Hunter uh, at the Royal Mail Hotel as well. What was it like in that kitchen? And that, honestly, if I had my time again, I wish I could have done three or five more years there. Like I was there for, for just, just just over three years. Um, that was by far one of the greatest cooking experiences I've ever had. That if it wasn't for Dan and that kitchen, I wouldn't be the same chef I am today. Just in terms of organisation and order and cleanliness and creation and the science behind the food and the, the science behind the technique and the methodology. Like, you know, like to be honest, that was the hardest kitchen I've ever worked in. Like, you know, we, we you wouldn't like, you know, people wouldn't like to hear it, but, you know, we used to work a 13-day roster, 13 days on, one day off. And, you know, you'd start – Seven, seven thirty, eight o'clock, finish, you know, one AM, two AM, two thirty. Like you finished the day when the job was done. Like, you know, we had some like huge days, but like I you know, with the whole with the whole wage scandal that's happened in recent times, like, you know, looking back now, I, you know, on average worked 50 to 60 hours overtime unpaid. But what a lot of people now wouldn't understand what that means. But what that understood for me at the time, my parents couldn't have understood what it means, saying, why are you working that much and not getting paid for it? But what a lot of people didn't realize is what I missed out in the in the end of each week in my pocket, I gained in a lifetime worth of knowledge. Like, you know, the skills and practices and techniques and recipes that I learned there advanced me so far ahead of so many other so many so many so many other of my peers just from like from from Dan and his ideology behind food and you know how he sees things and how he approaches situations what I learned there made me you know the greatest I ever could be so I, I look back at those times with rose tinted glasses as like they were the most hardest evil like psychotic times of my life but they were also like that was the best job I ever had. Like that were the greatest years of my life, and I just wish that I could have worked a little longer. Because you know who who knows who knows like how much more better I could have been, or who knows where I would have ended up if I could have stayed there. But unfortunately, like like with everything, you um in time in kitchens and in places and jobs, you know, there's a point in time where you just reach your limit, and then enough's enough, and then all of a sudden it's time to go. So unfortunately, I reached my limit and uh, off I went. But 
I'm grateful for the grateful for the experience and grateful for the time. If I had my time again, I'd do it all exactly the same. You've uh, these days you're in Queensland. Well, tell us about the the move from out of Victoria to Queensland. What prompted it? So um, obviously, COVID was the the driving force. So I literally spent four months building a restaurant um, uh, in Albert Place off. Collins Street, like literally across the road from the Louis Vuitton store, in the old, in the old site opposite, uh, opposite the uh, the Stokehouse City venue. I forget, I forget the name of the steakhouse the the restaurant was in. So, I spent four months building this restaurant. Spent another month like cross checking the food and trying to get everything right. The restaurant was the the opening is called Bistro Garcon. We literally open for four weeks. Um, and then COVID hit, and this this restaurant was like a nineteen eighties nineteen eighties inspired Parisian bistro, like literally a passion of love and labour. And it was like for me, it was like a once in a lifetime thing. I'm like, this is the this is like everything I've ever wanted and more. So we spent like literally four and a half five months getting this place built, organised, ready. We opened up. We were literally open for four weeks and the same week that all of our press was about to come out that we were actually going to, you know, start making this thing go for it, um, COVID hit. So it was a it was a slippery slope, unfortunately. So COVID hit because uh, because we were only open for four weeks, we had, didn't have 12 months of trading history, so not one person in the venue was available for any government support. Um, so we closed its doors hoping that it ends and hoping and praying and hope and, and just there was no like 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 you would have known there was no end in sight so i tried to get another job and i applied for every single job i could on seek literally all of a sudden as a chef in melbourne for the first time in my life out of work which is just which then was unheard of so i applied for jobs like prison guards and plant operators and garbage collector, anything that I think thought I could do. I actually ended up getting a job in a nursing home out in Bentley. And I'm like, okay, I'll do this until, you know, I'd never, I'd never even stepped foot in a nursing home before getting a job there. I'll do this until COVID ends and then hopefully Garcon can reopen. Um, and then as as it got longer, there was, there was really no ending – site for COVID and unfortunately like I spent five months working in this nursing home and that was just the most I'm not going to say soul destroying because that's pretty big but that was super depressing because I'd never been in like in a situation like that cooking with the constraints that chefs and nursing homes have with with how much money they can spend on food, the food they've got to cook and eventually I just got so depressed and so upset because I'm like this this is my life now because there was there was no end in sight. I got home from work one day and my wife says, "Hey, do you want to move?" I'm like, "Yes." I'm like, "Where do you want to go?" She's like, "I don't know, Sunshine Coast." And I'm like, "Cool, done. Let's go." And literally, I'd never even been to the Sunshine Coast before. 7 weeks later, we're on a plane to Queensland. And that and that's and that's how we ended up on the sunny coast. So, it was it was Never in a million years would I thought I'd end up living on the Sunshine Coast, but it's what happened, and it's been honestly the greatest move I've made. Well, these days you're manning the pans at Market Bistro, which is one of the most exciting venues in Queensland at the moment. How did the, that gig come about? So, um, I when I got to the Sunshine Coast, I literally took any job I could find. So, I ended up flipping burgers in a place in Malulabar, which um, – 
honestly, it didn't end up – it wasn't very good and it was – I tried hard to make it work because I was like, anything's better than working in a nursing home in Victoria. But um, it sort of – it was really, really draining. So – um, I found out that Tony Kelly was about to open this restaurant, Market Bistro, and then flicking through the Instagram of Market Bistro because they had like all the all the renders of the designs of what it was going to look. I'm like, wow, this looks pretty sweet. Flicking through, I see a picture of Harry Lillay, and I'm like, whoa, Harry's there. I'm like, wild. So, um, quite a few of my mates in Melbourne have all worked for Harry and like literally only speak the highest things. And I hold Harry in such high regard. He's an amazing chef. So I got one of my mates to make an introduction to Harry. So I sent, literally sent one of my mates a text. Hey, here's my number. Can you send it to Harry? I'd like to work for him at Market Bistro. Literally five minutes later, Harry calls me going, how's it going, man? And I'm like, fuck, that was, that was pretty quick. And he's like, oh, so you, you want a job? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, when can you come for a chat? And he's like, can you come today? I'm like, oh, I've got a break in an hour. So I literally went on my break from the place that I was working at, drove up, met Harry. We had like a 15-minute conversation about food and goals and lifestyle and, you know, all this stuff. Made a handshake and then literally th- two and a half, three weeks later, I was there at Market Bistro. And the rest is history. It's just been – it's been a wild roller coaster journey, but it's been like – to, it's a bit of a metaphor. It's like I've, finding Market Bistro was like jumping off a cliff and landing in like a like a fluffy cloud. Like it's it's just been I've just been so lucky and so blessed to you know find that place and end up working there and having having the venue and the the owners and the support network around me to really you know let me do what I want to do and just help me flourish in every every way every way and sense of the word great producers at the heart of everything that you do do you have any stories about uh, pig producers that you've connected with and that um, that you work with on the menu so um what Unfortunately not. Like, you know, over the years I've met amazing pig producers and like unfortunately it's it's a bit of a balancing act with the produce because like you'd be surprised. Like the Sunshine Coast has some of the most amazing produce you can find, but to get your hands on it in a in a fresh state and fresh manner, it's a bit like unless it's prawns, swordfish, spanner crab or tuna. It's it's a bit it's a bit hard to get like you know um, I've been in in the ch- in chatting to try and organise there's some guys uh, that live out towards like just past Butterham that they breed rare breed heritage pigs which the like you know we've we've looked at starting to use Zelado, um exclusively on the menu because like they 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 do very very small wholesale but. Like the unfortunately the nature of the beast with Market Bistro, we're such a busy venue. Like the their supply, like our demand outweighs the supply. So you know, but if if you want to wind the clock back, um, you know, it's my Melbourne days. So like a, a very uh, not so well known fact about me is I actually when I was twenty five opened up an Eastern European restaurant called Brutal, and at the cornerstone of our restaurant, we literally did um, like charcoal spit cooked suckling pig. We literally cook a pig every single night. Um, unfortunately, through 
unfortunate deals with my business partner. I eventually lost out of that venue, but like for the 11 months that I was there, it was unbelievable. We literally put a, put a pig on the spit every single day. Now, during the course of that, um, I met a guy by the name of Costa who's like this big Greek dude just lives and breathes, breathe, lives and breathes like pigs. And him and his dad had a farm at, at sort of Dalesford Way. And so I was literally getting pigs at the restaurant delivered on a Monday that were killed on the Friday. And like he would hand rear all his piglets, only feed like his 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 pigs organic grains. He would literally hand reel them, hand hand slaughter them. Um, he would shave them down, like dip them in boiling water, shave them down with a straight razor, hang them. And I've still to this day, I have never seen a better suckling pig in my entire life. Like you know, you touch the feet, and the the feet on the little piglets are soft like silk, and like you know. So that's that's a story, and like you know, unfortunately, I've um, I've been looking for a supplier like that, but unfortunately, he's one in a million. You know, it was that was truly amazing. Let's let's talk about some pork dishes over your career. Is there, are there a couple that you can tell us about? Um, and, and so I've I've sort of I guess I hate to use the word signature. But um, I'm I'm going to use it anyway. Sort of a little signature thing which I which I picked up from Joe Vigetto. So like you know, uh, we saw pork cotletta with Joe. So I've sort of taken the ideology behind his pork cotletta and sort of made a basically it's super simple, man. It's it's a crumb pork chop with like panko breadcrumbs. Parmesan cheese, chopped parsley, dried oregano, and then more whole fennel seeds than you could ever imagine. Like literally, if there's two kilos of breadcrumbs, using 250 grams of like whole fennel seeds. And there's something about when you crumb a piece of pork with whole fennel seeds in the crumb, when they get either fried in a pan or, you know, lightly fried in a deep fryer, the flavor that the aromatic and perfume and toasted flavor of that fennel with like, you know, the sweet, sweet, subtle pork flavor is something out of this world. And sort of like, you know, I've done a variation of something like that for as long, for as long as I've been away from Joe, I've always leaned on that. And I'm so thankful for the, that I learned it from him. And like still, still to this day, people go, holy crap, like what was in that crumb? And like, it's just fennel seeds. That's literally all it is. And it's, it's that's like that for me, like when I, when I learned that and saw that, that for me was like game changer. I'm like, I'll never, if I ever have another piece of crumb pork, there's going to be more fennel seeds in the crumb than you could ever imagine. Um, so that that's 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 a bit of a signature thing for me. Um, uh, one of the other things, so like, oh, this would be, it would be 2016. So I opened a venue called Mercedes Me for Salvatore Malatesta while I was in my time at the Saint Ali Group, um, and. On our menu daily, we had a thing called a C-class carvery. So um, we literally like either cook whole roast chickens or do a whole roast sirloin. While I was there at the time, I'd sort of – I had this idea of porchetta and like I could never – I'd like seen a couple of videos and like tried and tried and tried. It literally – no joke, I, I literally cooked half a pork belly 
every single day for about four weeks trying to nail the porchetta. And like for me, like that's that's a big thing that's a part of my life now is literally like the classic Italian porchetta, you know, fennel seeds, chili, oregano, garlic, salt, pepper. So I've sort of now after after all that R&D and like after all those failed attempts, I've finally nailed the porchetta and got that down to like literally – a simplistic art form and that's something that you know you don't you don't see it everywhere and you know more often than not you'll go for and eat it somewhere and it'll be dry or it'll be overcooked or the cracker won't be right now i've literally got that thing nailed like i'll pull that out on the occasion as a, as a sunday special literally just roast two pork bellies and you know within an hour at market bisher they're gone like <laughs> So that's 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 like for me, if you if you want to talk pork, that's like a pretty huge achievement for me because that was like a lot of hard work and effort to get there. But now we're there; it's just reaping the rewards. I noticed recently you had a um, roast pork chop with mustard fruit sauce on the menu at Market Bistro. Can take us through that dish? Yeah, so that's that's a culmination of. Um, a little bit of culmination of Joe Vargetto and then uh, another chef that I worked for named James Crummer, who's also a good friend of mine. Um, I picked up the the mustard fruit sauce from him. The, the genesis of that recipe, I believe it comes from the square from Philip Howard when he was in his time there. So um, it's, once again, super simple, pork chop, tenderized, backed out crumbed in the the heavily fennel crumb and then the the vinaigrette that we make so it's a it's based off uh, roasted hazelnuts roasted coriander seeds whole mustard fruit uh, and chardonnay vinegar and tarragon so you you blend that up to a puree and then emulsify um, sunflower oil into it so you get this you get this really thick emulsified mayonnaise but like sharp and tangy and herbaceous uh, puree, which like it's the the mustard fruit sauce is this perfect balance of sweet, sour, and fruit. Like you know, so the combination of that sweet, sour, fruity element going with the subtle pork with like the the toasted aromatic of the fennel seeds, it's just it's it's just amazing. And once again, like you know, I've had at Market Bistro that little that pork mustard fruit or pork fennel seed, I've had that sort of number. It just, I, I can't find it in my heart to like sort of take it off the menu. Like I'll take it off and be like, oh, guys, this pork dish is no good. Let's let's bring back the mustard fruit. Let's bring back the crumb. And so it's just, you know, even I've got like I think maybe the fourth iteration on the menu at the moment. So it's, we've got a – Pork, like pork loin schnitzel, so belted out really thin and long, crumbed in the same fennel crumb, and then over the top we we've we've loosened up the mustard fruit dressing, so it's quite loose. We just loosen it with water, so it's quite loose, and then drizzle that over the top of the pork chop, and then put peas and torn up mint dressed with lemon oil over over the top of the schnitzel, and grate the top of it with salted ricotta. And you know, I just I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be a one trick pony, but I just keep finding ways to reinvent those same flavors just because it's just so unique and so beautiful and absolutely delicious. You've, you've had some big life changes moving to a sunnier climate and in a venue that's making a huge impact in, in the culinary scene in Queensland. What, what are you loving about what you do? I, you know, the biggest thing, like 
I'll be I'll be open and honest and like Tony Kelly is the best boss I've ever had in my whole life. And it, if it wasn't for for him and his insight and his his driving ability, but not just him, like you know Harry and Luke and you know I've got this amazing team around me who constantly listen to me and who and who constantly give me the tools to help me do my job. Like, you know, a lot of chefs have been out there and there's a lot of a lot of chefs have been out there and put their trust and hopes in uh, in people and talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm working in a venue where I'm loved and cared for and appreciated. I'm working with people like, you know, the front of house venue manager, Nick, um, Nick, like I've got a guy who's on the floor who's my – my my brother, like, you know, we go into battle every Saturday night and we do it all together. And like I've got this amazing team around me who just help me flourish. And like, you know, cooking cooking is a team sport. It's not it's not about it's not a sport about individuals. Like, you know, it just so happens I'm the head chef. But the truth is I couldn't do it without the kitchen hands. I couldn't do it without the junior chefs at the chef to parties, without the venue managers, without the, the past commies, without the floor waiters. Like, can't do it without the kitchen hands, the apprentices, the chef to parties, the sous chefs. It's like cooking is not an individual game. It's a team sport. Um, and I think, I think the follow-on effect of – us working as this beautiful, harmonious team is like, you know, the customers can pick up on that. And we've created this super busy, like super busy monster venue in the middle of nowhere. Like, you know, it's it's still a building site. There's a car park being built next to us right now. Like, I think there's, there's an apartment, there's a holiday in hotel, there's a city hall building that's not yet complete. Um, and that's it in our little area. So, like, you know, you go there. Like, I've had mates come up from Melbourne to come see me. They're like, what is this place? And I'm like, yeah, I know, right? It's just like, you know, anywhere in Melbourne, it's all about location. It's all about where you are. And, and you know, it's such a, such a make or break thing. But here, it's like we're literally in the middle of nowhere in a desolate, empty, undeveloped, undeveloped area. But we're, we're busy every busy every single day of the week and, and it's like you know it's all it's a combined group effort and and team effort which helps that venue be as busy as it is well daniel it's amazing what you guys are building up there and it's an honor to have you on the crackling today to hear your story uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon absolutely thank you so much always love a love a chat and a yarn this is the crackling a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.